0: Welcome to the Exalt podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon
1: and I'm Sophia Hagelani Alba. Today, we are really excited to be joined by a guest that I had the pleasure of meeting at the Helsinki Global South Encounters a few months ago. I came to that encounter through my work with the Just Ecological Political Economy blog, which is by Helsinki Institute of Sustainability Sciences' Global South blog. I heard that lecture and I thought that there were just so many crossovers with some of the conversations that we've been having here on the Exalt podcast, and we had to have her. So without further ado, please introduce yourself to our guests and tell us who you are and what you do. Hi
2: Sophia and hi Christopher. It's really great to be on this podcast with you and thank you so much for inviting me to another Helsinki event. I've been asked to come to a couple of now and there is just a lot of crossover. There's a lot of overlap with the kind of research you guys are doing in the EXALT initiative and also the Global South Encounters with Helsis. So it's really nice to make this kind of connection. So I'm Mari Frame. I'm a professor of economics at Merrimack College in Massachusetts. I'm a professor of economics, which is a little bit weird because I'm not actually an economist. <laughs> I'm a political economist, and they're a bit different. The fields, we're all studying the economy, but the approach is very different. But that's what I am right now, professor of economics. And what I study is a pretty much critical political economy of the environment. I've been studying Global North, Global South issues ever since I did my PhD, which I finished in 2014, and for the past, gosh, I guess it's over a decade, I've focused on this issue of ecological imperialism, which turned out to be a much longer research trajectory much bigger and much broader than I think I could have ever imagined when I decided that I wanted to work on the issue of imperialism as a PhD student.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. It's it's really wonderful to have you here. And I mean, this sounds like such a fascinating topic, but I guess for our listeners at home, what is ecological imperialism?
2: Well, let's start with the The term imperialism, and I I think in a very simple way, imperialism means when one country controls the resources, the labor, the land, the politics, maybe even the the ideology, the concepts of civilization, the concepts of progress, the military, just some sort of subjugating relationship between um, some countries and other countries. And I got interested into this topic because I was doing my PhD in international studies with a focus on international political economy and basically mainstream American political science doesn't have imperialism in it, um, not really. And um, I, when I started reading about imperialism, I uh, became very interested in this history of colonialism which underpins imperialism and especially our economic system and how we can have this subjugation happen despite the fact that nations are politically independent. And for me, the big tie-in of imperialism is how imperialism works through capitalism, the expansionary dynamics of capitalism. And so when I wanted to work on imperialism, what I wanted to bring in was the current day, the big issues around the environment, which as we all know, that's that's the topic right now, is living in a global ecological crisis all around the globe, systemic. Um, and I thought, okay, let's combine the two topics. Let's talk about how imperialism, which is, Um, embedded in the capitalist world system and embedded in the expansionary dynamics of capitalism, how it's really linked to all of the environmental issues that we see today. In fact, if we start to uncover, if we start to kind of excavate what's beneath a lot of the environmental issues, what we can find are dynamics of imperialism. So that was kind of a long-winded answer to your question. But when I think about ecological imperialism, I think about that, the fundamental expansionary drives of capitalism. And I think about how they have necessitated some sort of subjugating control over the politics, the economies, the resources, the labor um, in the global South by countries in the global north with a history of colonialism underpinning the entire thing. And I think that there are many ways to think about this term ecological imperialism. My own research which I'll talk about as we go along kind of takes one stance but I think especially as I'm seeing more people working on this topic you can take many different stances. You can take a good look at what's happening with global capitalism. You can take a decolonial stance from an indigenous perspective. You can take the stance from a feminist perspective. I've seen that as well. You can take the stance of a critique of development and our notions of progress and civilization. You can take the stance of race. And all these different stances would give us a different insight into Basically, the capacity of some people to control the world's wealth, and with it, the world's resources, labor,
1: ideology, and other people to suffer the socio-ecological consequences. It is pretty impressive how certain people, some people, as it were, uh, really do seem to have a capacity for this kind of control and accumulation at all costs. The more I study extractivism because obviously we come at these kind of questions of the world capitalist system from the extractivist perspective which as we mentioned earlier there are so many crossovers here but um yeah I just I I find myself continually impressed (laughs) at the depravity (laughs) I mean to put it very shortly of some people and their the way they seem to feel that it's okay to interact with the larger world but that's just kind of Yeah, I feel you. I feel you there. Um, It's really sadly impressive. But you mentioned that you'd had a long research trajectory and this question has kind of grown over the course of your research career. How did you get into this and kind of where has it taken you? So I think that it was, this
2: is a topic that was really um, a long time coming. (laughs) Um, On a a personal level. Um, I My mother comes from Malaysia and my dad was a Peace Corps volunteer and I've always had um, a, a tie to Asia um, and I started traveling at a very young age. I lived in India when I was an undergraduate student. Uh, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Tanzania um, and after that, I traveled in the Middle East for several months because one of my best friends was Jordanian. And then I entered into a master's program with international studies and a Ph.D. with in international studies. Um, and so I was coming into these topics with a feeling of. A lot of connection <laughs> to places like Africa and Asia on a personal level Um, because I lived as a Peace Corps volunteer in a rather remote African village without running water or electricity teaching um, secondary school for over two years. I was about two and a half years in Tanzania. And when I came back to the U.S., as I'm sure you guys can imagine, things were shaken up. I didn't just take for granted the notions of development and progress and civilization um, and I started noticing some things about my own culture and also being an American overseas, you really get a good insight into the kind of privilege that you do have. But the thing is, when I started my studies as a graduate student, what I noticed is that any kind of criticism against America overseas or against capitalism or the market system was pretty carefully weeded out of a lot of mainstream American political science. Yet at the same time, I knew that things like colonialism had happened. And I could see how the American social sciences were just really set up to be judge and jury. I'm going to be harsh here, (laughs) but just set up to be judge and jury over the rest of the world, you know, in terms of ranking countries, in terms of deciding which countries were developed, how much progress they would have to have in order to reach this kind of American standard, right? As if America would be the gold star for the entire globe. And so I thought, what would really go against this entire way of thinking? And I thought, I need to do a dissertation on imperialism that would just get right at the heart of the issue. Um, And so I didn't know, and this was in 2010, and in my entire PhD program, there wasn't a single course that I had to take on the environment. So I wasn't thinking about the environment, but um, in 2010, there was the Cochabamba People's Summit in Bolivia. And so I was very curious what was happening with Evo Morales, and I decided to go and spend three months down in Bolivia. And then I became very aware, okay, this concept of imperialism is completely tied up with ecology, with the environment, with climate change, with the looting of resources under colonialism. And that's how I got into combining the two topics of environment with imperialism. And I came back um, after Bolivia trying to narrow down my dissertation more and I discovered a set of literature ecologically unequal exchange which was beginning to try to um, study empirically and also theoretically understand the linkages between countries in the global north and countries in the global south and how the consumption or the living standards or even um, the historical progress, the historical accumulation of capital um, was dependent on like ecologically unequal exchange, these net asymmetrical transfers of resources from poorer countries to the global north. And people were trying to um, put numbers to this. They were trying to uh, study this through material flows accounting just you know, looking at all the, the net resource transfer. They were trying to look at this through um, just carbon emissions and so issues of climate justice. They were looking at this through embodied land in imports and exports or embodied virtual water or embodied um, pollution. So I feel like some research had happened before the 2010, but when I, I feel like when I started to resource this issue, the, in, just the increasing ecological crisis was pushing people to really try to understand, okay, who's responsible for it now? And how did it get that way? Where did it come from? And how is it happening now in the global economy, which is nominally free nominally people only enter into relations of exchange because it's going to lead to some sort of Pareto optimality. So that was the beginning of the research.
0: Thank you so much for that. I mean, that's really a, an amazing journey and, and such a, a great insight into the the evolution of your, your thinking and your worldview. And, you know, it's something I really always appreciate hearing because I, I think I know for myself, I know for Sophia, and I know for so many of our listeners, We've all had these different journeys, and it's always so nice to get that sort of insight. But coming off of this, you were kind enough to share a, a bit of your book, Ecological Imperialism, Development, and the Capitalist World System. Really fascinating work in there. So, I mean, coming out of this, and for our listeners, how did you put this into practice, like this this evolution of thought? Where did you focus your empirical work on, and perhaps why?
2: Yeah, so of course it started, probably like most of us, it's going to start when we're doing our PhDs, because when else would we have the time to undertake an enormous research project? Um, And I decided to um, focus on Africa, because that's where I had spent quite a bit of time before, and I don't really speak Spanish, but I have it's it's rapidly declining, but I <laughs> at one point I was pretty fluent in Swahili, um, so I had that tie, and I knew I could probably um, then more easily do research uh, back if I wanted to in Tanzania, which I ended up doing. So what I did is um, I decided to focus on foreign investment in Africa and to do some field research in Tanzania. I got a Fulbright grant to go back for six months, which was wonderful because I hadn't been back to Tanzania since 2004. So I went back in 2013 and spent six months there. And I basically just ended up studying a lot about colonialism first in Africa. And the era of post-colonialism, of economic nationalism, and then the switch that happened basically to what I, it was basically neoliberalism and structural adjustments. Um, and I went back and I read the kind, the classics. Like I, I read a bunch of stuff from Nere Re and Nkrumah and Walter Rodney. And I just found it so fascinating because when I read Nere Re, all the thinkers, they all seem to really anticipate the situation that I discovered was happening in um, right now in Africa. And they had, it seemed like they had really wanted to avoid that. So um, what I basically did is a lot of historical context because I'm a political economist and historical context is everything. And so I traced just the relationship between the colonial control that happened with the colonial state and the colonial administration and the control over resources um, with uh, the colonial foreign investment that was happening in Africa. I looked at it under colonialism and then I looked at what the countries were attempting to do post-colonialism under economic nationalism. And in those two time periods, first of all, it's it's really stunning when you study the colonial history because you realize um how much things were set up to extract resources like the entire colonial administration land being centralized when i studied under tan in tanzania you know just land being centralized under the german colonial administration and then under the british colonial instru- uh, administration and that administrative apparatus still kind of remaining there until today. Um, So you have that centralization of power in the state and how much of it was for extracting resources or controlling labor. And then with the post-colonial period, the era of economic nationalism, which, again, I never really learned much about this era in like standard American political science or political economy, because it was really just kind of um, dismissed as being economically inefficient and corrupt because uh, there was a lot of state interventionism. Uh, But what I discovered when I dove more deeply into economic nationalism is a time period when there was concerted effort that was anti-imperialist. There was concerted effort to regulate foreign nationals to get higher terms of trade. There was pan-Africanism. There was a non-aligned movement. There was the new international economic order that was a platform brought to the United Nations that had a set of demands, demanding that countries would be free from military interference should they choose to nationalize their industries should they choose to create primary commodity cartels which would get higher prices. There was demands for reparations for colonialism. There were um, demands to put regulations, not just nationalizations, but regulations on multinational corporations, where they would have to either hire local labor or they would have to um, pay higher taxes or whatever. And so there was an attempt to create a more equitable capitalist world system, a more equitable global economy. Now the era of economic nationalism, it's been criticized on both the right and the left for a number of reasons. Um, But it, In my opinion, the interesting thing is that when I started studying about the neoliberal development policies, which were really implemented as parts of the structural adjustment programs, um, they were a complete reversal of economic nationalism. So um, just to transition, I did the historical studies from colonialism through economic nationalism. And then the big question is what's happening today and how did that happen? And a lot of that I felt could be really traced back to this time period in the 1980s when economic uh, nationalism was basically collapsing for a number of reasons throughout the developing world. And the World Bank and the IMF stepped in and... As countries were going into debt and when a country goes into debt, it gets in a very perilous position. If they default, they run the risk of not being able to get loans on the international market again. Um, they run the risk of not being able to fund their government activities, just the basic day-to-day um, activities that they need to run their country. So it's a it's a it's a perilous situation. And um, countries throughout the global south had gone into debt by the 1980s. And that was basically the end of economic nationalism. And what I found, which really wasn't talked about in my studies um, when I was doing my PhD, is how much these structural adjustments were really just the exact opposite of economic nationalism. They were a stripping away of any kind of control on foreign nationals. They were, again, this re-emphasis for a lot of countries on export-led development, which is basically what it sounds like. You develop as a developing country, not through internal import substitution, which is basically trying to um, create your own domestic industries in order to substitute, so you don't have to um, import manufactured goods. You're trying to kick start the industrialization process in your own countries, and that that was something that happened under economic nationalism. So we're talking about a total reversal here of the orientation of economies to be external, once again, which they were trying not to do because uh, they were trying to gain some independency after colonialism so there was a reorientation towards exports and not just exports but exports based on comparative advantage which is an old concept going back to ricardo and it's you basically um want to be producing and exporting what your country has a so-called comparative advantage in and in the eyes of the World Bank and the IMF, that meant for a lot of developing countries a concentration on their natural resources. So they were encouraged to export their resources, let in transnational corporations as their growth strategies. And the more I began to study it, the more I began to realize how much this entire orientation is tied into ecological issues today. And tied into just all the economic tendrils, I guess you could say, of ecological imperialism.
1: That is such an interesting history. And like the fact that you've highlighted quite directly how some of this was, you know, missing from your own studies when you were a student. And I I have the exact same experience. You know, I remember like being in college and sitting in political science courses and like. Thinking back on it, like what what were they actually teaching me? Because I feel like everything that I've learned about the extractivist logic and imperialism and like really what colonialism was, it's like it overturns everything that I learned back at good old Cal State. But could you tell us a little bit about the sectors that you investigated in Tanzania and for this work?
2: Sure. And I, I should just point out first, so I did have some wonderful professors in my PhD program. They're the ones that even got me, you know, interested in these topics. Um, It was really just kind of the more mainstream political science, which I was studying at the time, that excluded it. So I I don't want to overlook the good professors that I had. Um, Yeah, so what I did is a kind of layering for my research. Um, I did a historical tracing of sectors like mining and land to just... See what the changing policies were, how the structural adjustments changed those policies, and then what were the outcomes in terms of um, just responses for investors. And at the same time, I was doing that, I did an empirical analysis with material flows accounting, which is a kind of accounting framework. You take a bunch of data, a bunch of disaggregated data, production statistics for every country, and you can also look at import export. Um, physical trade. Uh, so like the import-export data and physical trade terms, like just weight, right? And so I got very interested in that. I actually um, was a vid- visiting scholar at the Vienna Institute of Social Ecology for about three months, so I could learn that. And so what I did, both in my book and also in my dissertation, I looked at kind of this aggregate data that would give me a picture of how much countries in Africa were exporting in resource terms over time, so like from 1970s until now, and how much they were importing versus how much they were exporting, while I was looking at the changing laws and regulations around foreign investment. So I could kind of get a bigger picture, so like um, what's happening with trade, with just the trading, the import and the exporting. Um, So let me just talk about the importing and the exporting, the material flows part first. What I have discovered and the data has gotten better, it's gotten more comprehensive than when it was when I did my dissertation. Now the data is amazingly comprehensive what they've done. (laughs) They basically have been able to look at every single country and say exactly how much a country is importing in resource terms. Um, Not just in terms of what physically is crossing the border, but if you look at countries' imports, all the materials that it takes to create those imports, and all the materials that it takes to create their exports. So you can really get a good idea of a country's kind of arguably, scholars have called it, ecologically unequal exchange with the rest of the world. Because if they're importing a lot of resources that we see is happening with uh, countries in the global north, most countries in the global north, there are always exceptions. There are always exceptions. We have to point that out. We can see that, you know, in a very resource terms and a very concrete resource terms, how much like, you know, the living standards actually rely on some sort of asymmetrical net inflow of resources coming into um, the wealthier countries. Likewise, when I look at Africa, it's a net outflow of resources, despite the fact that African um, countries, the people um, per capita are using a very, very low amount of resources, only like three to five tons per capita versus like in the US, 20 tons per capita. So I look at this kind of aggregate data to see um, how African countries compare in the world in terms of how much resources they're using, how much if it's really just going to exports through that time period from 1970 until basically now. And I look at the um, policies, how they've changed. And basically um, in the mining sector, that was really targeted under the structural adjustments that was you know was targeted to make it investor friendly and investor friendly just meant taking away all of those stipulations that were put there under economic nationalism to try to get more from foreign investors to try to get higher taxes to be able to nationalize to demand that multinational corporations had to buy a certain amount of their mm, whatever they needed with it from the country you know just things to try to even out the terms a bit and in places like Tanzania that had complete domestic control over mining you know I looked closely at the gold mining sector in Tanzania now it's completely owned by foreigners basically it's owned by um, Barrick Gold, which is a Canadian company and um, Ashanti, which is um, a South African company. And, you know, NGOs um, have really documented how it has led to the bleeding out of billions of dollars in profits over time uh, because um, the terms are so terrible. The, uh, the taxes are so low. And I looked at a number of studies and that have shown that you know during that commodity boom for African nations that happened in the early 2010s, if they had just taxed similar somehow to the taxes um, that Australia puts on companies when they come in, then they would have made millions, multi-millions dollars more. Okay. It doesn't mean that the money would have necessarily reached the people. That's a whole other discussion, like internal inequalities, but it would have stayed in the country and i also looked at the land sector i looked at um closely pretty closely at the land sector in tanzania and i traced it again from colonialism up until neoliberalism and just like the mining sector it was that initial colonial state which created the laws and the administrative apparatus to centralize resources and land and mining under the colonial state that apparatus didn't actually disappear under Nere Re's economics, um, African socialism. And because it didn't really disappear, it, it was kind of easy under, um, I don't know if easy is the right term, but with the structural adjustments, because things remain centralized, it, it was possible for investors to tap in to that, to um, a situation where land was already centralized and resources were centralized away from say, communal control. So what I'm trying to say here is basically neoliberalism was a shift, but the mechanisms of control were constructed under colonialism. And so what we have is a situation of, you know, I'm talking about Tanzania here because that's where I did my most in depth, um, but I did some, outside of the book and outside of my dissertation, I I did some pretty in-depth research in Cambodia too. And I also look at um, palm oil and um, financing of palm oil in Indonesia and Malaysia in my book as well. Um, To make a really long story short, it's been a long time in the making. I'd say from colonialism onward, there have been state apparatus, land laws, Mining laws that have kind of steadily taken things out of the hand of communities, and in the in the era of neoliberalism, where it's all about export led development and um, investor friendly policies, it's not a surprise that there's ecological disasters because you know land mining that's our environment. And this isn't to say there aren't resistances and there aren't shifts according to public sentiment because that's been pointed out. It's been pointed out that, hey, investors actually, sometimes they get into a bit of trouble and um, they have to pull out their investments. And especially when it comes to accusations of land grabbing and some of those investments are collapsing. So it's not clear, but personally, If it wasn't for that public sentiment and if it wasn't for that resistance from civil society organizations and local communities, I think, you know, investors would very much have the upper hand.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, you you touch on so many really important points. And I mean, yeah, with the the structural adjustment stuff, I I just keep popping into my mind, you know, the the Asian financial crisis in the 90s as the, the ultimate example, in my mind, of how Bad things can get when uh, pushing uh, these sort of structural adjustment programs, especially when places like the IMF or World Bank don't actually do or seemingly don't actually do uh, their own research into the actual situation. Is try to copy, cut, paste uh, what has worked for them in other places, uh, and of course, you know, even coming out of that and looking at the the rise of China, how their refusal of the IMF is, you know, often linked to their ability to grow so much and become uh, such a, a world power as they are today. Uh, so I guess this kind of, this goes into uh, kind of the the elephant in the room on all of these things. Like my, my background very much focuses on China uh, and I've kind of gotten more into Africa, China, things through that. So... We've been talking a lot about the structural adjustments, the, the shift of neoliberalism, but of course, this this initial shift happened a while ago. Um, what are we seeing today? How are we seeing new actors coming in? Of course, China, but it's not just China. Of course, India is becoming a lot more active. Uh, Turkey is becoming a lot more active. Russia is becoming a lot more active. So um, yeah, what are we kind of seeing there?
2: Those are great questions. Um I'm actually very curious of your thoughts too, since this is your um, this is your background. Uh, but I'll, I'll go ahead first. Um, so I'll tell the story that I actually told with the Hulse when I did that interview. Um, I didn't think much about the emerging economies and their role in ecological imperialism until I got a job in Cambodia after my um, PhD. And the situation in Cambodia is probably one of the worst uh, circumstances for land grabbing in the world. It's a very small country and up to 700,000 people have been estimated to have, have been involved in land conflicts or been subject to land grabbing. And um, I, I kind of had to do it on the sly because my university um, wouldn't have wanted me to be investigating this. It was a Cambodian. um, university but I as soon as I got to the country I decided to go and make friends with a local human rights um, organization called Lakato one of their best uh, well one of their most prominent human rights organizations and they did they do a lot of work with um, workers and the foreign nationals that come in and they've done a lot of work with the land grabbing So I kind of plunged into trying to understand the dynamics of land grabbing in Cambodia. And I was doing um, interviews, very heartbreaking interviews really um, with um, women and when they were kicked off of land in Phnom Penh. And the thing that became immediately apparent in the situation of Cambodia is that from Europe and the United States, um, investments into land were a very small portion. It was all other Asian countries. Domestic capital as well. So we can't um, underestimate the power of domestic capital whenever we talk about these um, environmental issues like land grabbing or deforestation. But they're definitely not the only one in any country. Foreign investors are very big. So in Cambodia's situation, China was played a very big part. China played a very big part influencing the government in Cambodia, but not just China. To be fair to China, it was also Vietnam, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia. Um, and the way I see it, and I, I think this is a very, <laughs> this is an increasingly fraught topic, and I just... I wrote that chapter in my book on China in semi-peripheral imperialism. And sometimes I've stepped back since because I was done several years ago and the Cold War rhetoric has ramped up between the U.S. and China. And I'm like, oh, no, what have I done? Because it's like. The topic's so fraught. <laughs> because. America wants to portray China in the worst light it possibly can. But at the same time, how I've come to think about it is okay, this is this is complex. This is, I'm gonna launch into kind of a complex way of viewing this. We have this long history that was really um a capitalist world system that was it was created by the European powers. Um just the political boundaries, the uh political colonial administrative apparatus I was telling you about that was created to be amenable to extracting resources that still exist in a lot of countries. We have the legacy of the structural adjustment programs which um, made export-led development and investor-friendly development the cornerstone of a lot of countries. That foundation is there, right? But we have a combined ecological crisis with a um, intensification of capitalist relations of productions globally. Countries across the world, it may not be domestically neoliberal capitalism. In countries across the world, they might combine public-private sector like they do in China. It may not exactly emulate the American one but it's some form of capitalism. It's still some form of um, a growth model, which is extractivist, which is overseas, which is dependent on, um, at least when it comes to foreign investment policies and international trade, rather laissez-faire policies. So you can look at regional Asian um trade agreements like ASEAN I looked at that in my book which is and then there's uh, there's ASEAN China agreement and they are also built on like laissez-faire just increasing investor rights and increasing um, free trade right so we have a foundation basically that has made it pretty easy for a capitalist around the world to exploit resources wherever they're coming from. And I say that this topic is fraught because there's the historical shaping of the capitalist world system, the decades, hundreds of years of accumulation of capital into the global north and all the resources that went into that. And then there's countries that are like, well, why can't we do that? Because you did that. But then we're in this global ecological crisis where if anybody does it, it's just um really affecting indigenous peoples it's it doesn't matter who's doing it it's going to affect the urban poor it's going to affect the the local communities there's just simply costs to um intensification of capitalist relations of productions globally and so i try to take a long-term holistic view of this um but you know, when I've looked closely, when I've looked closely at what's happening in Cambodia for the local people, if you are a person who's being kicked off your land or it's being deforested, it it doesn't matter to you whether it's a Chinese company or an American company. Um, I looked pretty closely at palm oil in um, Indonesia and Malaysia and a lot of the money from palm oil because it's palm oil tycoons uh, from Malaysia and Indonesia who made their money exploiting the rainforest and the natural resources. And there's a lot of issues of just internal imperialism. That money goes overseas and invests in other places to grow palm oil. So we're looking at many layers of, we're, we're looking just at, at, at many layers of the problems of this model of growth
1: so of course this for me always the the question i feel like i'm always asking and always trying to find an answer to um which of course you know i don't there's there not an easy answer which is um oh here we are welcome to 2022 but what's is there a way out is there hope <laughs> like will will everything eventually be okay <laughs> not to be too simplistic about it. I
2: definitely fall on the side of those who um, think we need a very, very different paradigm. I think, um, I I don't know if that's going to happen, though. (laughs) <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say. I'm a little bit cynical about it happening anytime soon. Um, I think that, to be honest, there are powerful social classes in every country that are very much benefiting from the system. Um, one complication I haven't talked about yet, but I, I meant to, is the financial system, which really funds the whole system if you look behind any of the extractive industries if you look behind the continued funding of fossil fuels you're always going to find big banks pension funds um other kind of mutual funds um and they are not being regulated nearly enough And it's questionable whether they can be. Um, So I just saw a report the other day. This was an Oxfam report just really recently. You should find it, um, which made me a little bit cynical about uh, billionaires. If we look at the carbon emissions are for the billionaire class, they're like a million times more than the average 90 percent of the world population. And some 70% of that is due to their investments, which are responsible for activities, funding activities that are carbon intensive. So um, the problem is we have a trading system, which um, a lot of countries are reliant upon exporting their natural resources for revenue. We have um, a problem of you know, land laws, mining laws, all around the world being set up to be very investor-friendly. We have a very opaque financial system, which is providing the funding. We have divisions based on class with um, very powerful people in every country who would like to keep the system the way it is. And we have this... um, big gap between uh, wealthy countries and poorer countries where the wealthy countries um, as you know we've been talking about all of us on this podcast we didn't grow up as Americans learning about these issues so how are we going to get people in America to care about their consumption patterns or to care about what their governments are doing in some abstract faraway trade treaty? or to care about where their investments are going when they're pulled into these gigantic funds that have investments going all around the world. I mean, who even has time to review the environmental and social implications of where your money is going if you're working really hard and your money's just going into a 401k? So we have some serious challenges. Like it is one thing that has really... Very, very clear studying this topic is that we're talking about the whole global economy here, and we're talking about certain notions of what it means to progress and to be developed and to be civilized.
1: Wow, that's that's a really bleak picture on the global scale, but of course, you know, completely resonates with the reality that we are seeing um, in today's world. Um, but have you encountered any resistances from below within kind of this wider bleak picture? Yeah, I mean,
2: there's always going to be kind of this meta structure from the top, and there's always going to be resistances like the. The Carl Polanyi double movement that we've learned about, you know, in grad school 101. Um, and I think all over the world, there are local communities that are resisting extractivisms. Um, I think that there have been the outcry over the potential for a land grabbing disaster, which seemed to be happening in the beginning, like 2010s time Um in places like Africa has actually stopped a lot of that from happening. Um, I'm currently doing an edited volume with um, some indigenous scholars and scholars from Latin America and Africa where they're talking about uh, local grassroots resistances to either land grabbing or extractivisms. And I think communities around the world um, are standing up. So it's not like it's not happening and that's really important. Um, how are we gonna know that it's enough well when those communities aren't under threat anymore by this meta structure but you know the desire to not completely trash the planet we saw that in Lula's election for Brazil, which was um <laughs> which was a big relief and um yeah I I think also one thing that, is good that i've seen happen is an increasing calling out of the financial sector there are um definitely a number of ngos that are shining a spotlight on everything that's very opaque to the rest of us you know the operations of the banks and the hedge funds and the pension funds and linking them directly to things like funding fossil fuels or deforestation and just making that information available to us so um We just have to keep the pressure on and we have to keep the pressure on in things that are normally just not part of our daily life. You know, these policies that are being decided for us way out of the hands of most ordinary people.
0: Absolutely. And thank you so much for that. I mean, it can be really hard in this field to uh, sometimes to see the, the light through the industrial haze That seems to be setting all over the world and you know uh, this is such an amazing conversation and i really feel like we could talk all day your time all night our time about so many of these different topics um and you know there's so many things popping in my head about the the kind of addictiveness of modern society and how quickly that's changed and and how even within living memory, we still have ways, even in the United States of people living much more ecologically friendly. Um, I I always bring up the example of my mom was born in 1945, uh, grew up on a farm in rural Pennsylvania and like the, the way that she lived and how much more like friendly for the environment it was and how much more like conscious of the environment it was. So I always have that hope too, that like, it's not that far out. It's just trying to kind of break the addiction that we've had of as you pointed out the the massive benefits that we've gotten from this exploitation but we don't want to take up too much of your time today you've been so amazing uh but at the end of every episode there is something we like to do
1: are we gonna do something like right now like together like us
0: yeah i think we will what's it gonna be oh you know what time it is
1: <gasps> Is
0: it? Question time! Question time! At the end of every episode, we like to ask our guests the question. Uh, it's a, a call to action for our listeners, something that they can do in their daily lives after hearing this amazing conversation. Uh, could be something that they, they do, it could be something that they read, but something so that they can engage. With this discussion, so for our listeners at home, is there anything you can recommend for them? Um, yeah,
2: I there's so many angles, none of them are sufficient on their own, of course, because it's such a you know the problem is so big from, uh, it's so systemic in many ways. But um, you could certainly take a look where your money is going. Uh, you know, um, in terms of if you have any investments or if you have a retirement fund. Um, you can keep up with uh, the talks that are going on with climate change now because the issues of loss and damage and any kind of climate reparations are just very fundamental to everything that we've been talking about. Of course, you know, daily consumption, green consumption, I can be kind of cynical about because I think there's limits to green consumption but if you want to try to do something a little bit in your daily life that never hurts um and if you know supporting really the struggles I think of um your local environmental groups of the indigenous peoples within your own country um in the United States there's plenty of struggles going on that you can get involved with. These are all things that I think we can do. And um, yeah, that's about all I have to say.
1: Thank you so much for that really thoughtful answer to the question. And I think that you've raised some really important points in answering the question, um, especially the point about, you know, know where your money is going, which is, of course, easy to say, and then sometimes very hard to do in practice, because it is not a transparent system in so many different ways. But I'm so sad to say that we're going to have to end our conversation for today because I feel like as Christopher said, you know, we could talk for literally hours and I feel like we've just started to scratch the surface. But we thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was a really, really interesting conversation. And I just really appreciate how much detail and depth and clarity you were able to give to some really complex topics.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, it's, it's been such a fascinating conversation. We absolutely have to have you back on so we can keep digging more into this. Uh, you know, keep saying more dirty words for uh, U.S. academia, uh, <laughs> getting it out there. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Mariko.
2: Well, thank you both very much. It was a really great to talk to you guys. You guys are such wonderful hosts and um you guys are doing great things with the Exalt Initiative and it's really my honor to be included with you guys and to have this conversation.
0: A huge thanks again to Mariko Frame for coming on and having such a wonderful and interesting conversation with us. Please join us next month and we're going to be speaking with Barish John Sever about extractivist policies, climate change, and migration. From the icy snow, but slowly lengthening days of Helsinki, Finland, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sophie Haglani Alba, thanks for listening. Have a great start to 2023, and we'll catch you next time.